Now in half of those pictures, or maybe in 75% of those pictures, I look like a woman who is very uncomfortable and is not having a good time at all. Yeah. But there I am. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was this week's guest, Nita Sweeney. I'm recording this in something of a mixed state. Super excited that my kid got his first COVID-19 shot, and yesterday I received my booster. But man, oh man, the booster really knocked me for a loop. I try to never lose sight of the fact that getting a shot is a total act of privilege, especially when so many people around the world can't get, get their first shot. This has me reflecting a bit on how it can be that so many people around us here in Ohio and in the US who are refusing to get vaccinated don't seem to realize what a privilege it all is. But I know that listeners to this show understand, like you, I just want this over. My guest today is author, runner, and mental health advocate Nita Sweeney. In our conversation, we talk about Nita's book, Depression Hates a Moving Target, How Running With My Dog Brought Me Back From The Brink. In many ways, this episode builds on the many conversations we've had on the show over the past few years about mental health and addiction. But Nita and I also get into the culture of running, the wellness industry, and the intersection of wellness and privilege. You can read more about Nita and her work by checking out our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. We've got a link to Nita's website there, in addition to a few other resources, including information about buying Nita's book. While you're at prognosisohio.com, please check out the more than 90 past episodes we've got posted there and read up on what we're doing with the show. If you can, consider supporting the show for just $3 a month by becoming a Patreon. We really appreciate it so we can continue to grow the show, but also to bring you conversations like the one you're about to hear. So the book is titled Depression Hates a Moving Target, How Running With My Dog Brought Me Back From the Brink. You know, But as readers are going to learn if they read it, and they should, um, for you, writing the book itself was an achievement, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but almost on par with running a marathon. I mean, this was a lifelong dream of yours. Well, the marathon only took half a day, whereas the book took about 20 years. So... I guess you could say there's some parallels, but yes, it felt like a huge achievement, especially to have a traditional publisher as well. Not that there's anything wrong with self-publishing, but to have a publisher want to put it out into the world meant so much to me. Well, as, as an academic who's written books, I can you know, attest to the fact that writing a book is also a long game and you have to be up for that if you're going to do it. Yeah, it's its own kind of training, its own kind of structure. Absolutely. So, so I wanted to talk to you in particular now, Nita, because you know, like so many, I've I've been dealing on and off again, you know, throughout the pandemic, but just in general, um, with depression from time to time, and you know, it's it's one of the reasons I took a break from this show, and also you talk in your book a little bit about the importance of taking a break every now and then, and kind of understanding limits and working through that. But I have to confess, and this I'm sure you've heard this before, you probably know people like me. I absolutely hate running, and I've tried. And I've, you know, had moments where I thought, oh, maybe I can do this. And, you know, I kind of get in that runner mode and it lasts for, you know, one time, <laughs> if I'm <laughs> honest about it. Uh, at a few junctures, you say that you you found yourself dreaming about running. And my sort of sarcastic thought was usually when I'm running in my dreams, I'm running away from something. I mean, like, you know, it's it's not usually a good thing. So I didn't relate to that, but that's a good reason to read a book and to kind of expand your thinking. But I'm guessing you do know people like me. Oh, absolutely. Most The most common joke I get is, what are you running from? Or 
why are you running if nothing's chasing you? I just don't understand that. So that's the, you know, that's kind of the standard line. And in the book, I was actually, I thought I was dreaming about flying. And maybe I didn't make it as clear, but that's what my sense was. And it took me a while to realize I was actually dreaming about running. So it's a, kind of an interesting twist. A, a book about running is one thing, and there are great books about running, but your book has, you know, I mean, mental health and depression in the foreground, right? This is this is one of the major themes of it. You know, you work through a lot of different uh, ideas here, uh, feelings, emotions. I mean, you work through in embarrassment, fear, anxiety, struggling with weight, some really specific negotiations you have with your body beyond weight, just kind of, and that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the book. It's a book that kind of, you can imagine yourself trying to, you know, jam yourself into these fashionable running clothes or you're going to stores and imagining yourself in those and realizing that's, that's, that's not you. And of course, the history of struggling with depression. But at first you turned to writing, and I guess I wanted to start there. It seems like earlier on, before you started thinking about running or really went after this, you thought you could kind of work through a lot of these things with words and, and on the page. And I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the difference between the two things, running on the one hand and writing on the other? I mean, are they fundamentally different? Are they related? It, you know, Can you just tell me how you think about that a little bit? Sure. I think of writing as a physical activity. I think of it as a practice. I think of it as mental training. Mm -hmm. But it isn't the same as breaking a sweat. And there's something for me, which it took me a long time to realize, about breaking a sweat that makes a huge difference. And so it felt like I had a very solid foundation in processing emotions and in recording details in how to tell a story. I, you know, I studied with Natalie Goldberg for a number of years. Uh, she's a best-selling author and a Zen practitioner. I went to MFA school. I did all of that. So I had this strong foundation. But until I got to a place where I had the physical side of it, where I was pushing my body a little bit harder, the pieces just didn't come together for me. I was on and off of different medications. I cycled through all kinds of depressive episodes. They discovered I was bipolar kind of later. So there was a whole med adjustment with that. And something about the running gave me that physical component. Um, it's actually, you know, people talk about endorphins. It's mm. actually endocannabinoids that's the big hit with any kind of physical activity where you break a sweat. Yeah. So it's, you know, they talk about runner's high. Well, yeah. And um, so there's a lot of parallels. I mean, I joked about writing a book being like running a marathon. Tons of parallels with structure and training. You know, you have a training plan, you have a plot, all those kinds of things. But ultimately, it took that physical component for me to feel like I was making big progress. As I'm reading through your book, and again, I'm just being really honest with you about my own relationship to this, I just found running so incredibly boring. And I know I've talked to others about this. You know, I became one of those people who was like, well, if I'm going to run, then I'm going to listen to books on tape or podcasts. Like, I have to be doing something else. And you even mentioned at some point in the book that you didn't want to do music with words, uh, you know, and I can't fathom listening to jazz while running. I mean, you kind of do talk about you know, sort of pump you up kind of music. It's not like you're listening to Chopin or something like that. But 
you know, it, to me, that's like it's a whole mind frame where you can get out of this idea that I you need to be taking in information or you need to, you know, y- your mind is actually focused on the running, whereas my whole philosophy was, I'll do this if I could focus on something else. Well, a couple things come to mind. First, maybe you're not a runner. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to be a runner. There's so many ways to move your body. There's so many ways to break a sweat. Um, You know, I'm not telling everybody they should be a runner. It's a joy for me. But my point is to find some kind of movement activity, something physical that helps give you the neurotransmitters that you can't get anyplace else except drugs. Right. So that's the first thing. You might not be a runner. Nothing wrong with that. the, actually, there's a couple other things, too. The second thing is to find something that you fall in love with so that you don't have to make yourself do it. Now, I still have days. I mean, I've been I've now done what I've, I've done an ultra marathon, three fulls, 29 halves and 18 states. I mean, I have lots of running experience. And there are days where I get up and think, well, that was nice. But, you know, it's over. What are you going to do now? Yeah. And, I, and I, it's just this part of my brain. Um, so that's kind of one thing. The other thing is most people aren't actually running. They're sprinting. Mm-hmm. And that's different. I run slowly. And many, many people run too fast. And if they slow down, um, they might enjoy it. Maybe not. Now, as far as the boredom factor, I also am a longtime meditator and uh, some of my friends joke that I have an infinite capacity for boredom. Maybe I even like boredom. Yeah. But, um, but the running becomes a chance to meditate where I choose an object of meditation, whether it's a site, of, you know, like I'll take the color green. This time during the running, we're going to look for all the various shades of green we possibly can. In the winter, it might be gray and white or a sound. I mean, on Saturday morning in my neighborhood, what I'm gonna what I'm gonna hear are leaf blowers and lawnmowers, uh, tree trimmers, things like that. Yeah. And so that becomes my object, and I just keep bringing it back to that. And because I can dive into that, it becomes interesting to me. But it's you know it's the kind of thing that if you don't get to a place where you find joy in it, do something else. There's right. just too many options. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, your honesty in writing in this book doesn't bill or present running as this thing for everybody. In fact, there are various moments where you weren't sure it was for you. Oh, and I still am. I mean, I, that, I'll probably always be that way. But that's, you know, some days I don't think breathing is for me either. So right. it just, right. <laughs> it's just my tricky mind. You talk about this kind of commodification of running. You you go to these stores where they have this fancy equipment and, you know, we all know that there's a kind of fashion involved in many of the kinds of recreational things we do or exercise things we do, whether it's yoga or baseball, you know, you got to have the fanciest equipment and there's this kind of class uh, uh, orientation to it. It seems like you have a good relationship with this though. You resisted going all in and just dumping tons of money down on the, the, the fanciest timers or the, the, the equipment. What have you learned about this as you've gone through this about kind of wellness culture and the ways in which there's a kind of commercialization around it? 
I am not immune to it. I now have a very fancy watch. And I did joke at one point in the book where I bought the fancy watch. And the question was, does that make me a real runner? That's a theme throughout the book. Am I a real runner now? Yeah. How about now? How about now? And after the years, the book, the book finishes, the end of the book is in 2012. And in the years since, I have definitely succumbed to one of the fashion issues. I discovered these amazing running skirts that have giant pockets. And I wouldn't have, I mean, I think they're cute too, but I wouldn't have bought one if I hadn't seen a woman put a phone practically the size of a laptop in her skirt pocket and tell me that she ran a four-day race. It's like dopey where you run Thursday, Friday, you know, different races. Yeah. And because I'd asked her, how did you, you got pictures on your phone. How did you carry that giant phone? And she just slid her phone into this giant pocket. So I have succumbed to it a little bit, but I was very grateful that it wasn't required, mm -hmm. that I did not have to go to a running store and be, you know, I say confronted um, because that's how I was mentally then. Now I love going into a running store just to talk to like-minded people, but to not have to go there and think that they were judging me for my size or my lack of experience or my age or any of that. And now I know that actually most of that isn't true, but that's the way I felt about it at the time. So it's a really good question because it is, I mean, I'm in the wellness industry with this book and my next book that I'm hoping to write, you know, that's all the, that's where we're at. So uh, um, it's definitely, uh, uh, it's about the money in a lot of ways. Yes. And, and the same is true, you know, with the, uh, I, I like to call the baby industrial complex, you know, when you're expecting a child, you have to, I mean, there's the pressure to have this or that um, is, is pretty intense, uh, depending on what communities you're part of, right? And, and affluence and privilege are a huge part of this, being able to enter into that at all. I will mention, I mean, in a lighter note, um, your example of a pocket, I mean, uh, pockets for women is a long discussed problem. It's a, it's a political issue. We need pockets. Why don't we have pockets? <laughs> no, for sure. So I don't want to, you know, that was a very <laughs> pragmatic example you gave actually. Um, and, and, and you're right. There are lots of people who the first thing they do when they're going to, try something new is they go out and buy all the stuff and then they never do the thing, right? We know this, you mentioned, you make a, a comment in your book about gym memberships and kind of January new year's res resolutions, everybody signing up and then going once if that, and then just disappearing. Clearly there's that kind of idea that you can buy your way into things when what you describe in your book is really kind of hard work. Well, yes. I mean, hard work is what counts in the end anyway, but you have to remember where I started I mean, I was terrified to leave my house half the time. I was agoraphobic. I still have it sometimes. And so the fact that I could put on these old clunky giant trail shoes that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't subject my feet to for a second now and, you know, put on some unmatching sweats that hung off me or, you know, were possibly too tight, might have had holes in them. And leash up the dog as a decoy and just go down into this ravine and run without having to go to a store, without having to buy any gadgets. I had a digital kitchen timer. That's what I tracked my time with right. for the intervals right. at first. And so 
So in some ways, running is a very simple sport. We joke about that also. I mean, I'm wearing at some, the last race I did, I was probably wearing $150 worth of gear between my watch and my skirt and my hat and my, you know, sunglasses, all that stuff. And yet when I began, it was the, you know, it was clothing basically from the Goodwill and 10-year-old shoes and my four-year-old dog and my digital kitchen timer. That's all it took. And my willingness to start, my motivation to start, which was given to me by someone else. I, I, if I hadn't seen a friend start, I wouldn't have started. It also seems like you feel safe running in your community. And that was something I was thinking about is sort of whether that's universally true or or the way in which that would factor into whether somebody would want to just walk out the door and go running. I'm sure there are lots of communities where people might not feel safe doing that. And it seems like you have, although you do go traveling places where you've had moments of not wanting to go to another place. Mostly my issues have been my own, what's in my own mind. I am so fortunate. I'm totally privileged. I will use that word. I live in yeah. Upper Arlington. I'm a white woman. I have health care. I have an income, a you know, roof, a very nice roof over my head. So I don't face a lot of the struggles that many people do. But what I do struggle with is my mind. And so I am not sure if I had been someone who was in a community that isn't safe, where they don't feel safe, just even in broad daylight to walk down the street. And there, there are places like that in Columbus. Sometimes we don't like to think about it, but there are places like that. I live in Central Ohio. Um, for you know the readers outside of the Central Ohio era, I'm in a in a affluent suburb in Central Ohio, and so I'm very very aware of that. And I didn't talk about that in the book because the perspective. I mean, I did talk about the healthcare, but I yeah. didn't talk about issues like race and classism and very important issues because I was talking about mental health. And I'm yeah. sorry if I, you know, sometimes I think I should have touched on that more about the, the issue of privilege. And I didn't because it was such a mental health focus to me. That's the, I wanted people inside my mind. And for some people that was really uncomfortable. I mean, there are definitely not, I don't always get positive reviews because for some people it was just too much to bear to be inside my head. But you're right. I, now that I'm in, a running group where we meet at a particular safe location, usually on the Olentangy Trail or maybe, you know, some of the Three Creeks. There's all, so many amazing running trails here in Central Ohio. And I know people who wouldn't run in their own neighborhoods, who who come to the group so that they can be in a, in a safe place, especially women, to be in a safe place to run with people. Um, at the time, I didn't even know that existed. When I started running, I didn't know any of that existed. I just knew that this friend of mine was running. She was the same age, the same size, and somehow she was getting out there. And uh, that's all I knew. Yeah, and not, not every book can do everything. And God, do I know that. I've tried to, <laughs> you know, and, and you get your feedback and you say, well, okay, I missed that or the times changed underneath you while you were working on the book. But, it, you know, I think it's just worth Staying with for a minute because you know mental health and depression certainly there are people who don't have outlets who are really suffering indoors. I mean, some studies that I've done and been involved with show that you know in, in 
high crime communities, people don't leave their house very much. They just don't feel safe doing that. So I think it's something we can't miss how, how lucky you are if you can find those safe places, especially being a woman, right? Running for your, by yourself uh, at various times, although you had your dog with you for, for much of that, which is also a, a really important thing. But you also found community and, and you, your book also suggests some ways in which people can find community, whether it's virtual communities online or people within their own community. So it seems like getting out of that is another way, getting out of your own head, getting out of your own individual position is another way of maybe feeling safe in doing something like becoming a runner. Yes, that was really important for me. I had to start out virtually because again, I have um, have such body issues, um, dysmorphia and other um, just mental health issues when it comes to body size and misconception as to what all that means. Mm-hmm. So I started virtually where no one could see me and it was a, you know, I think it was like a, it, there wasn't even Facebook yet. I mean, I wasn't, there probably was a group, but I wasn't in that. Um, and, uh, and in that community, I found people who came in last and did races and came in last and were proud of it. And I thought, what, what's up with that? You know, I've been a straight, I've been like the straight A student type. I'm an overachiever and what the heck? And they just found joy in running. And then I found this other group of people, the Dead Runner Society, people who've been running for decades, some of whom are race directors, small races in other states. And they were 10, 20, you know, 30 years older than me, still running. And they didn't care. And so finding that community of people and seeing the spectrum of the people who want to qualify for Boston, want to be the fastest, want to train that hard, have the bodies and minds to be able to do that, which is another thing. Um, I might have the mind to do that, but I probably never had the body to do that. And that's okay. I mean, I think finding that place. So... The community has been really, really important. And then eventually I was able to join an in-person community. And I still am in a lot of virtual communities too. But, um, but I want to go back to what you said about the people that are kind of stuck in their houses because that's a very scary thing that we are in a time in history that most of us have never seen. Um, my husband's 104-year-old mother just died last year, and she was in the previous pandemic. And that's what she said. She said, we, you know, we put masks over our faces, and we mostly stayed home, and people we knew died. And I thought, wow, you know, we were not ready for this at all. So I really feel for um, any of those people. And my encouragement, I mean, that we, we do know that it is relatively safe to be outside if you are distanced. And I'm wearing a mask again outside. And so, you know, my encouragement to anybody would be to just get outside. You know, if you have to drive to a park where it's safe or drive to a different part of town where it's safe, so you can just get fresh air. Because that there's something about the claustrophobia of being stuck inside and being so scared that you can't leave. I have just completely been there. Yeah, the internal and the external, your mind and the world are in this constant conversation. And it's funny, there, there's one moment in the book um, that you don't actually make this point, but I, I connected it. Early on, you really couldn't bear the idea of people looking at you and seeing you, and you even had these 
kind of external ideas of what you must look like walking down the street, how silly you look or this or that. And then in the end, uh, you, when you're running the marathon, you say you want to buy up all the pictures that they're, they're offering you. And I thought, wow, what, what an incredible move from wanting to, I mean, I would never want to see myself running. I guess I'm in that place. And, you know, from time to time um, in my academic life, we do this work where they said, well, do you want to watch a video of yourself teaching so you can do some hard work? And I'm like, absolutely not. Are you, <laughs> you know, out of your mind? <laughs> you know, so there, there, but that, that's a real accomplishment when you can actually bear to look at yourself externally like that, because in a way you're kind of assuming the position of what others might be seeing when they're looking at you. Well, part of the reason I wanted to get the pictures was because I wasn't heel striking. And that's a big theme in the book is my goal to remain injury-free. And I discovered a chi running, which is a, a form focus that helped me do that. So that was part of it because I had all these pictures of myself. Now in half of those pictures, or maybe in 75% of those pictures, I look like a woman who is very uncomfortable and is not having a good time at all. Yeah. But there I am, you know, there I am at, I think I was 51 when I ran, it might've been 50, I can't do the math right now, when I ran the first marathon. And it was just sort of proof to myself because there's still a part of me, I mean, I'm sitting in a room um, staring at a wall full of the medals from all these races I've run. And, and I put those medals on my wall, not for anybody else, but to remind me that I did these things. And so, yes, I did definitely go from a person who would be a no thank you. And I remember the pictures came back from my first 5K and I thought she really looks like an unhappy person out there running. And my husband, he always jokes. He says, I just don't get the whole running thing. You, you guys look miserable. Yeah. I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone who looks happy running. And I always joke, well, we like to have run. <laughs> Same thing with writing. Writers like to have written. Yeah. So I want to turn a little bit to the, the explicitly kind of medical and health professions uh, themes in the book. Uh, I wonder, you know, at various junctures, you've had issues, you know, as you'd expect, uh, strains, all sorts of, you know, I don't know, things you were concerned about that you had to work out. And, and, and you flat out say the pain's just part of what runners sign up for and working through it in various ways. And, and obviously you try to prevent it as much as you can. But you also talk about kind of working through different professionals' advice. You know, some advice you take, some you don't. Sometimes you, you at one point you seek out a, uh, a physical therapist, I think it was, who actually is a runner because that was important to you, somebody who gets it. Um, what have you learned about health and healthcare and kind of the medical world through your journey uh, with running? It's really important to find medical professionals you trust so their credentials are important. For, I think that there are some people that can go in and they look at the diplomas on the wall and the certificates on the wall, and that's the most important thing to me. I have three degrees, including a law degree, an MFA, a Bachelor of Science in Journalism. I've got so many credentials, I can't tell you. Um, and I know that there are some people I can't work with. I'm just not the right person. Yeah. So for me, the personality, you know, call it bedside manner, whatever, 
and the person's experience comes into play because the 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 doctor that um, um, I saw who told me to stop running, m- my gut reaction just from walking into their waiting room was just unpleasant. And if I had been smart and trusted myself at that point, I would have just gone out. I would have turned around, walked out and called my doctor and said, you know, I think I need a different doctor. It was just, it was just a feeling from the beginning. And so it's hard because again, I am privileged. I have health insurance. I have a health insurance plan that lets me choose my doctor. Whereas if I were an HMO, I wouldn't, you know, some plans don't let you do that. So I'm speaking from a, a position of privilege when I say find medical professionals you trust because our system is not set up for you to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, I, I know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege. And so in some ways I feel a little awkward about it. But I, I also know that I had to learn to trust my body because I didn't have, I have a permanent injury. I mean, it's not an injury, but it's like a, a genetic defect. The bones in my ankle are too close together. And so I have to work with that. But I also know that my mental health is as important as my physical health. And so we had this conversation, my psychiatrist and I had this conversation, and she said, this is very similar to the medicines you're on. At the time I was on, I think, four or five medicines. At one point I was on six different medicines for my mental health. And I'd come off, I think, one. And she said, these medicines are very hard on your liver, your kidneys that, you know, they are in your system. They're hard on you and they could shorten your life. That's possible. But we both knew that if I wasn't on them, I would have already taken my life. I would be dead. And so it was a question of, do I want to have the best life I can now and take the risk that, yes, at some point I may do some damage that can't be reversed? And that's the choice I've made. That's the choice I made was to keep running. But I also did things like sought out people who had similar injuries. I sought out doctors who were very familiar with my specific injury um, and doctors who ran who were very familiar with it. Or my, I keep calling it an injury. It's actually a genetic defect. And then I also um, sought out other modalities. So, for example, the chi running, which I've, I've spoken of a few times, I mentioned frequently in the book because I really think it's the only reason I'm still running. Not everybody gets it. Not everybody wants it. Not everybody needs it. But for me, it feels as if I can modify in ways that have kept me going. And I think about other um, sports, you know, and I'm not talking about really competitive sports. I mean, nobody's going to modify in, you know, the Blue Jackets game or something. <laughs> they're not going to say, well, he's got a he's got a bad ankle, so we're going to, you know. <laughs> no, no. But these are this, I mean, this is recreational stuff, yeah. <laughs> The Blue Jackets could use a little modification of their game, to be honest. (laughs) All right. Maybe that wasn't the best example. You do mention in the book, though, and I've seen this uh, with friends of mine in various ways. Um, You know, you talk about, for example, addiction in your life early on, especially with alcohol. And, you know, that this was turning to running 
was also a way to kind of get your fix, right? In a sense, you've talked about dopamine and all of that. But I, I've also seen people who overtrain, who overdo it. You talk at one point about maybe becoming obsessive a little bit. I think you use that language. And, and I've seen this with people where, you know, some colleagues or friends who are overtraining, overworking, they're clearly doing it because they're trying to deal with their mental health, but they end up getting hurt. And I, I see a lot of this happening to people who seem to overdo it. And you seem to be pointing more towards being really kind of uh, intentional about it and thinking about how to do this safely. And there are also moments in the book where you just have to stop for a while. I always worry a little bit. We've talked with the folks from Pelotonia on this podcast, and uh, I love the organization. It's an absolute sort of staple of Central Ohio. But when I see their signs that legends never rest, I get concerned because I think that legends do rest. I think rest is really important. Very important. Very important. Your muscles work better when they are rested. And rest is actually in the training cycle. The rest is actually when the growth happens. You strain the muscle and then you rest it. And when you're resting, it rebuilds. So absolutely. I just want to say also, and this is a point I really tried to drive home in the book. And I, from some of the reviews, I'm never sure I did. Running is one tool in a very large toolkit of mental health tools that I use to stay on the planet. I, am, I see a therapist. I'm on medication. I have support. I have family. I have a community. I write. I meditate. Um, so I have a very large set of tools. And running is very important. It's at the top. It's one of the ones I will reach for first. But there have been plenty of times. I mean, I tore my meniscus been about five years ago in a stupid egotistical act of trying to dash up a hill to chase someone down. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm like at the back of the pack and we are still very competitive, but I couldn't run for a while. I had to rest that. And I knew because there are plenty of people that I know that would rest a little bit, but not completely. And then they'd end up re-injuring it. But I knew I had to let it completely rest so that I could live to run another day because I want to be doing this for a very long time. But I, you know, I, I think um, a lot of it is what tools you already have built in. So I already had many of these tools before I discovered running, how much running helped me. And I find people now who running is their only tool. And if it's broken for some reason, they're kind of screwed. I mean, I hate to say that, but because yeah. it's really hard to get that other stuff going when you're, you know, suddenly injured and you have to be off for six months. And it's like, oh, do I find a relationship with a therapist now? <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, th I like a well-rounded approach. I think it, I think we have to keep it in perspective. Um, I'm not earning my living from running. I'm not, you know, um, I get, I mean, I get self-esteem from it. I obviously get mental health benefits from it, but it's not, it always has to stay in perspective. When I think of the title of your book, and I think this is a maybe a nice place to kind of end is, you know, you don't actually talk in the book directly too much about the title itself, right? Depression uh, hates a moving target. So the moving target piece is, as I understand it, just about being active, about doing things and whether it's running or something else, but also 
being involved in communities and and the the way in which your writing becomes part of your life it's almost like not not like keeping busy is the key but doing meaningful things and having meaningful things you can turn to so it turns out that this book about running is not really about running at all it's about managing one's life and this is a tool you've discovered that really works for you let me share where the title came from I am a mentor to a number of people in the recovery community, and I have a mentor in the recovery community. And often people get so despondent that they can't get out of bed. And so we call each other, and one of us will say to the other, remember, depression hates a moving target. Just get out of bed and call me back when you get out of bed. And that's where it came from. Uh, again, the, the title of the book is Depression Hates a Moving Target, How Running With My Dog Brought Me Back from the Brink. And uh, Nita Sweeney, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing with us. Thank you. This was a great conversation. You ask good questions and that makes it a joy. I really appreciate it. I always love ending on a compliment for the interviewer. That's just <laughs> perfect. Thank you so much, Nita. Many thanks to Nita Sweeney for joining me on the show. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by friend of the show, Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out the show's evolving social media presence, please visit the show's website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, next time with a conversation about sustainable transportation and infrastructure with Professor Harvey Miller of Ohio State University. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so you don't miss that episode in your feed. Thanks so much for listening and be well.